Welcome everyone to another one of our ASCO GU podcasts. Hope everyone's enjoying the meeting. We're going to talk today about single agent data with Tezo and Pembro and some interesting subsets and around subsets that were defined from previous trials and sort of the implications for clinical practice. I'm joined, of course, by Tom and by Noah Hahn. Um, Noah, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist at uh, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. I uh, primarily uh, focus my practice on bladder cancer patients. Thanks for joining. So, Tom, I'm going to kick it to you. Maybe give everyone a high-level summary of, uh, I don't know if you want to summarize the ASCO GU data or, or start with the phase threes. I thought what I might do is just talk about the story so far. So the story so far is that um, in cisplatin ineligible, PDL1 biomarker positive patients in the frontline setting, we can currently use tezolizumab and pembrolizumab. And that was based off two single arm trials, um, which um, uh, showed modest response rates of about 20%, um, but really quite impressive survival in single arm trials in the region of you know, 15 months or something along those lines, which um, essentially meant that um, they both got FDA and, and EMA approved. And then halfway through the ongoing randomized phase three studies, those labels were changed to the cisplatin ineligible biomarker positive population. And the reason for that change was the FDA and EMA must have looked at the blinded data and realized the biomarker negative patients were doing less well, um, which is understandable. And so the labels were then changed. They were, of course, provisional labels at that time. And they were on the provision that the, the frontline trials would be positive. And so now what's happened is the frontline trials have read out. And for the first time at GUASCO um, this year, um, we look at, we've been shown the data where the label actually lies. Because before, as you know, it was the cisplatin and carboplatin patients were compared to Pembro and Atezo. And the subset of the carboplatin only pdl one positive populations were not presented. Um, and so when you look at those populations uh, now, what we see for pembrolizumab, and it's only 80 patients in each arm, but what we see for pembrolizumab is a hazard ratio of 0.83 for survival in unselected patients um, and um, response rates, um, which I think are, are, are impressive as always, but not as high as chemotherapy. Um, so response rates in the region of 50% um, but, and chemotherapy higher at 70%. Um, but in the biomarker positive population, what we're not seeing is, I'm sorry, the response rates of 30% and 50%, I apologize. So response rates for, um, for pembrolizumab are 30% and 50% for chemotherapy. So the response rate is still lower. But um, what we're seeing is we're not seeing the biomarker enrich for um, overall survival. So the biomarker doesn't seem to be working particularly well. Uh, and then the atezolizumab, it's only 50 patients in each arm, only 25% of patients are biomarker positive. And in that trial, the response rate is above 30% and the hazard ratio is 0.53 or something in a, in a very small sample size. Now, neither are statistically significant and indeed the confidence intervals are wide because the numbers are so small. Um, the the pdl one biomarker for atezolizumab is different from the pdl one biomarker 
for pembrolizumab. And so it's complete two completely different tests. So it's very unlikely. And the ITT population, the unselected population for um, atezolizumab is, is nowhere near 0.53. It's in the 0.9s. So the reality is we've got these two data sets. We've got these two labels as it currently stands. And remember, we've also the standard of care has changed. So in both of these trials, the standard of care, which is chemotherapy, it's now chemotherapy followed by maintenance of valumab in the respondents. And so we had a podcast, a debate relatively recently before seeing this, date, this data. Um, and in that um, debate, it was decided that actually most people, when, when we did the Twitter poll, agreed that maintenance of Valumab after standard chemotherapy should be given to the vast majority of patients. And I'm just putting it to Noah whether he feels the data that we've seen changes very much. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame all of that because you're, you're right, Tom, it's been a lot of data in a short amount of time and very complicated by a number of different sort of subsets and different biomarker sort of platforms that sort of cloud the picture a little bit. Um, I mean, I think the simple, the simplest answer in terms of the data that we have today, uh, you know, would support what you've kind of said uh, with regards to sort of frontline chemotherapy followed by Avelumab maintenance. Um, you know, you've got randomized data there with an overall survival benefit. However, you know, the, the question at hand today about what to make of the frontline sort of data, the, the indications that are out there now, there's some subtleties that I think do bear discussion. Uh, and I do think sometimes come into our clinical practice in that the Avelumab data set is not the same as the frontline Keynote 361 and then the Invigor data with Atezolizumab in that the Avelumab data takes patients who had stable or responding disease and then treated them with checkpoint therapy. Um, so we miss you know, sort of some of those patients that maybe are a little bit sort of, you know, tougher disease, horse players that kind of progressed and never went into that trial. Those trials are part of the true frontline studies that we're talking about today where the confusion exists. Um, so I think, you know, when you look at it, we've got two randomized trials that really have not shown, you know, a survival benefit to combination immunotherapy and chemotherapy up front. Ezolizumab has demonstrated some progression-free survival, although modest. Uh, and now we have some subset analyses coming out, uh, trying to explore, you know, is there a hint of a more profound clinical benefit in even a subset of populations? And we're talking a little bit right now more about biomarkers selected in the platinum ineligible group. Um, the platinum ineligible group has historically been a tough to treat population in which carboplatin gemcitabine chemotherapy is the de facto standard of care for the frontline treatment. But none of us uh, would say that we're, we're, we're happy and satisfied with sort of that result. You know, with response rates of about 30, 35 percent, and you're looking at, you know, typically median overall survival is about, you know, eight, nine months. Um, can, I, can I push back a little yeah. bit there? No. So, so sure. you know, one of the challenges, I guess, is that the carboplatin based chemotherapy here uh, in this study had a 42 percent response rate mm -hmm. in the unselected patients it, with gem cis um, uh, and gem carbo together. That have fought, the response rate was only 45 percent. So it's a couple of points behind. And, the, you know, the CR rate was 10 percent or 11 percent. Now, I know it's not durable responses, um, but the, the, the principle that, that, that carboplatins isn't great at getting control of disease. I mean, and there's 75 percent disease control rate in in the 361 trial. So, you know, I think that actually you look at that and think, OK, I know it's not curing many patients, although the CR rate is 10 percent. 
Um, I, I'm not sure that carbon platinum is that is that bad. Would you Would you agree with that? No, I'd give you that. It's certainly it's certainly active. I, I think people have given it a bad rap, you know, because we have kind of pushed cisplatin for for years and years in the curable population and for good reasons. But in the metastatic setting here, where again very few of these patients um, are cured today, we're, we're seeing durable response. You know, some patients at the checkpoints, uh, but it's definitely active. So I don't think I don't think. Uh, I don't think it should be given a bad light in terms of that. And response rates, 42% compared to historical kind of 35%. It's in the range, you know, and there's been advances in care and how we pick our patients. So I don't think big difference. Let me, let me um, ask you. But I think your point of it, it's it's not a 10% response. It's 10% CR. Right. You know, so that's real. Let me ask you both a question sort of from a clinical viewpoint. And, you know, obviously it's it's not really clear what's going to happen to the label now with these these new data, you know, the the phase three data and then subset data, but Pembro doesn't, Pembro and Atezo don't look necessarily worse than chemotherapy, you know, in these subset analyses with all their limitations, except for response rate, right? There's definitely a decrement in response rate, but probably a bump in that if you do respond to immune therapy, you're likely to do so for longer, of course. So, so should it remain an option, even though we probably yeah. would mostly agree that, you know, chemo then maintenance of Velomab is, is the standard of care. Why don't you go first, Noah? Because uh, you can yeah, ask yeah. a tough question. I'll, I'll just probably agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think there's a couple things, and this is where I think uh, you know it gets tough for clinicians and other you know potential uh, folks looking at this. But I think the biggest question about you know whether a drug, uh, even if it's the first time it's coming through, you know whether it, it it gets a you know an approval or whether it maintains an approval, a lot of it come down to is there is there demonstrable clinical benefit you know, with the drug. And I think our traditional measures that we look at the easiest is overall survival. You know, then we look at sometimes progression for certain types of drugs, but then there are other means of clinical benefit, duration of response and the responding patients, and then toxicity profiles. And I don't think that there are many in the bladder cancer community that would argue against the fact that, um, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, in this case, we're talking about atezolizumab and pembrolizumab, that they have provided an important, new, durable clinical benefit uh, for a group of patients. Um, that much I don't think anybody would debate, but the question now is about sequencing. So where is that best to bring that in? Um, one of the issues in the frontline setting that gets talked about a lot, and I think we should touch on this a little bit, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Tom, is that with checkpoint therapy, particularly when we're talking about monotherapy, um, we often see these separation of survival curves very early, which seem to favor chemotherapy or those kind of rapid progressors that perhaps the cytotoxic chemotherapy is able to sort of debulk tumor volume in a, in a more efficient way than, than immune checkpoint therapy, and then curves come back together. Um, and that, that is a real clinical dilemma because we could in theory have long-term outcomes that show sort of equipoise and maybe even toxicity profiles favoring immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, uh, but comes at the risk of maybe losing some patients early. And I think that that aspect makes people uncomfortable in the absence of a reliable biomarker. So, Tom, I'd kind of like to hear a little bit of your perspective on that aspect of the chemo. Yeah, so I think frontline immune therapy is a bit risky. And I think yeah, there are some patients who benefit, but we don't know who they are. And the challenge you have is if you do it to most patients, you'll end up losing a lot of them. 
the issue with I think the maintenance of Valimab patients is those patients that are high risk who progress on chemotherapy and you lose those patients I wouldn't be giving immunofront immune therapy to anyway you know the yeah. bulky yeah. liver metastasis that progress on chemotherapy I'm not giving bulky liver metastasis frontline Pembro under any circumstances so you know I think that debate around that those that not all patients can get maintenance of Valimab you know I don't think like immune therapy is not salving, salvaging those patients. I don't think there's any evidence right. for that. So the, the question then comes that I've got for you, Noah, which I think is a challenging one. Um, so what you have is you've got the carboplatin data and you've said survival is important. And I bought, I buy that. We've got the biomarker positive data and the ITT. And the ITT for tezolizumab has a ratio for survival is one. And that comes down to 0 0.5 mm. uh, in 25% of patients. Um, and for pembrolizumab, it's 0 0.83 and 0 0.83. Do you think that will you, number one, would you rather have a biomarker agnostic approach where you can choose whatever you like? Don't worry about what the FDA says. So do you or would you rather say, I'm going to only use a Tezo and use that biomarker? So let's say. So the first question you've said is, yeah, I, I think you said you would like to keep labels, but we need to choose very, very carefully who gives it. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I would say that. Um, I do think we need to we need to um, we need to have some method to our madness, so to speak. And I do think we need. To so what is that? So what is that? So, OK, I'm going to push you really hard. Yeah. So you said so you said you'd like to keep them. I haven't given my opinion yet. I'll give that in a minute. So you said, yes, you'd like to keep them, but you want some method to the madness, which I totally agree. What is that method? Because I think there's possibility of a broad. So you've got three choices. Number one is you could say approve Pembro and not a Tezo or vice versa. Number two is you can say they both keep their label as they currently are and it's fine. Or you can say you're only going to go with a Tezo because that's got the hazard ratio of 0 0.5. Those seem to me yeah. to give the three logical options. Which one of those three? Yeah, I mean, I think I think based on what we have from the data today, I think actually probably the Tezo data seems a little bit easier to interpret, although small subset. Um, the difficulty with the pembrolizumab data is I think the biomarker was not as, as consistent in this particular sort of setting. Um, it has been there before, but then it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, gone back and forth. And we've seen this with the Atezo data as well, you know, as we're very familiar with. Um, the biomarker issue, I think the problem with it is, is that, you know, we're talking about an immune biomarker. And in these particular clinical trials of metastatic patients, most of these biomarkers are done from archived primary tumors most of the time. Um, you know, conceptually, when I think of a PDL1 biomarker in a patient, um, and this is not, our data certainly is not sort of consistent with this, but if I have a tumor that I know at some point that I have in a, in a CLIA setting, some evidence that some portion of their tumor has been able to have high expression of PDL1 at some point, it at least suggests to me that there is some type of a functional interface there between the immune system, the tumor, and that there may be some therapeutic target to go after. It doesn't guarantee it's still there. It doesn't guarantee at the same time point that's in the same tumor. Um, on, the flip side, on the flip side, in the, in, the, in the biomarker sort of setting where we've seen it not predict and that bio ne biomarker negative um, patients with, with specific agents still responding, um, that's a that's a tougher sell to me when when you've got a patient in front of you. Let's just let's just limit this right now to the carboplatin discussion because I think cisplatin's a different thing. But if you've got a carboplatin patient in front of you who has high volume disease, they've got visceral mets, they're a chemotherapy candidate from a functional status and otherwise in front of you today. Um, and 
you're considering, you know, uh, giving them an immune checkpoint inhibitor. To me, that patient, I'm probably going to give a chemotherapy agent no matter what. Um, exactly. Yeah. If you have a different patient, though, that is marginal, that you think you can get chemo too, but you're, you're nervous. You're nervous about real risk and toxicity. Um, and they also, you know, are not wanting it or favoring it. And you do a biomarker and you have it positive PDL1. Um, I feel a little better in that situation. But again, you know, this is if, if those drugs are available today, the data doesn't support any of what I've just said. So, <laughs> so how, how common, I mean, no, you're saying you, <clears throat> your first pass is sort of clinical features. And then the second pass is, is do they have biomarker expression? And, and in the, in the subset of a subset, maybe you could justify a Tezo. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I, I think and you're right. I think it's how many, how many patients group. would that be? It just seems like that's a vanishingly small, even if we accept this 50 patient subset, which I think is a little dicey, but fine. But that just seems like it'd be a pretty small I, slice. I think this is where I think the perspective from, you know, kind of an academic practice and a community practice, um, definitely have different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, I would tell you in my own practice that the patients that I would say are clearly not cisplatin candidates, metastatic, I can probably get them through carbo, but I'm a little bit nervous. It's probably 10, 15% of my entire metastatic practice. It's not a big portion. Um, and that may be generous. Now, I think if you're in the community, um, I think you do see some patients maybe presenting a little bit you know, later, a little bit, you know, more volume of disease, more comorbidities, et cetera. Um, it may be a little bit higher, but I think it's important to say we're not talking like it's half of metastatic patients right. that fit that bill. I mean, I think that that's right. Uh, the my my position on it probably is that I don't think there's a difference between the efficacy of Pembro and Atezo in this setting. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a difference or there appears to be a difference between the biomarker. But the challenge there is that the, the you're comparing 80 patient trial or with 50 patients in each arm, the numbers are really small. Yeah. The hazard ratio for Carbo for um, um, Atezo is 0 0.5 for um for, Pem for Pembro it's 0 0.8. They both appear to be going in the right direction. Um, and and so I probably wouldn't be choosing between them. I, I probably would just be saying that because it comes back to what um, Noah has said, which is really important, which is actually the selection of the patient is probably more important than the biomarker because in the in the in the Pembro trial, the hazard ratio on unselected patients is zero point eight three. Right. I'm sure <laughs> if we went with just the lymph node only positive patients, I'm sure that that's a population which we really need to think more carefully about. But the challenge is for community oncologists treating four or five bladder cancer patients a year, mm -hmm. this is not really a discussion which I think we should be having. My preference would be to say, you know, this is a, a niche position, the standard position that's getting control with chemotherapy, and then we can get the immune therapy in afterwards, which is something that I've been seeing for a while, saying for a while. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, uh, the question about you know, immunotherapy in, in the frontline setting. I mean, one of the things that, that we do need to keep in mind, which doesn't help guide our practice today, is that it's not like the issue is going away. There are many trials that are actually ongoing, you know, in phase three studies to evaluate 
you know, different combinations of different agents, even, you know, non-platinum sort of chemo uh, or antibody drug conjugate types of settings. So it, you know, it may be that the data that we have today with, with platinum-based therapy in combination with, uh, you know, PD-L1, PD-1 blockade, um, you know, we don't see an overwhelming signal, you know, in that no, we're going to have to wrap this up. Yep. We've got a time limit of 20 minutes. We're on 21. <laughs> right. You've got time for one question. So, you know, it sounds to me like the position is gem carb or, you know, chemo, then maintenance of Valimab for the vast majority. There might be a small slice of patients where you're mostly clinically selecting and maybe biomarker selecting to give single agent immune therapy. Is that that's pretty that good, a, Brian? Thank you. We could have done this whole thing in a minute and a half. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Noah, anything you want to add before we call it a day? Yeah, no, this was, this was fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Noah. I'm going to see you soon. Keep up. Appreciate it. Right. Take care, guys. Bye. All right.